All right, welcome, welcome. Welcome to another installment of Real Asian Podcast. We have our returning champion, Brian. Brian Tang, welcome, Brian. Yo, yo, yo. And I am Raymond as your host today. And we actually have a newcomer on board with us. It is my pleasure to welcome Renee, my good friend, Renee. Hi, Renee. Hey, y'all. Yay, welcome aboard. Thank you. So we're here to talk about the half of it. It is a film by writer-director Alice Wu. Uh, as we usually do, want to go around the table and just kind of give our quick thoughts and, of what we thought our first reactions when we watched the movie. Let's start with our guest, our newcomer, Renee, if you want to kick things off. Yeah, absolutely. I really felt that it was incredibly intellectual. There are a lot of nods to different philosophy and philosophers. And I really enjoyed this cyclical kind of birth, death, and rebirth. And of course, wrapped up in this really great unrequited love. And one of my favorite points being from Aster, actually, who puts it as barely repressed longing. And you can see this thread being pulled through, not only just through this love triangle that is kind of interesting, (laughs) Uh, but you can also see this through family and you can see this just through friendships and, um, you know, this longing can be for something different in their life. Brian, what are your thoughts? I, it was a really, really surprising movie. Um, by the end of it, I, my initial impression was, goddamn, I just watched a really, really good movie. Um, it's your, you know, your typical, well, no, your atypical rom-com uh, meshed mm-hmm. with so many different layers I mean, we'll get into like the different themes later, but it's just, it's so complex, right? Um, all the while talking about, yes, romance, talking about friendship um, is kind of like the overhanging arch of this movie, I, th- I feel. The filming, the acting, the script, um, yes, traditional where there is a climax, not very traditional where the buildup um, and how all the characters kind of come together. I thought it was a really, really good film. I want to kind of get into just the beginning of the movie, setting up this like theme of this mythology of love or this idea from Plato setting that the gods split the humans, us up into halves. And so we are on this earth. We are on this journey to basically search for our other half. How do we, how much do we resonate with that idea? Well, for me, I'm quite superstitious. And personally, you know, I'm, so I'm Hmong. And in our culture, we actually believe that we've already lived our entire life. I mean, we live in the clouds. And before we're born, we look down and see our life laid out. And then as as their mother is giving birth to us, we actually fly down from the heavens into that body. Um, so does it make sense? And like, yeah, I kind of, I definitely resonate with it. There's also these other things such as, um, I wouldn't say Americanized, but a more Western ideology is this twin flame where the idea, so it's not just soulmate, it's deeper than that. Soulmate means that you have the same vibrations as that other person, but a twin flame is actually something, someone being cut from that same fire as you, that is a part outside Uh. of you. And the flickering embers of each other actually uh, resonate with each other. Which one is more romantic, your soulmate or your twin flame? Oh. Or perceived, I guess. The, the idea is that you have many soulmates, actually, because it's about the vibration that you put out into the universe. But the twin flame, it's 
it's in its name twin you're that's the only other person that is there for you yeah brian what 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 are your thoughts on that do you think we are allowed to have many soulmates <laughs> man dude that's like yourself a- i'm asking you actually oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're both your soulmates you're both my soulmates <laughs> Oh man, but they can only go one twin flame is not it's none of you guys. Right. Oh um, <laughs> out. Just kidding. Out. Oh man. That was that was really interesting. I've never heard of that before. That's from Hong Hmong culture, right? Oh not twin flame. No, it's not. Oh. So yeah, just the living your life, living flying through the clouds, that's a very Hmong specific thing. Mm. But twin flame concept is the law of attraction. Good. So, I'm gonna drop it on my next date. Um I do really appreciate the way they depicted the the soulmate theme from the very beginning of the movie. Um, I think the whole animation when it comes to the paper cutouts and the stop motion animation and the whole reflection, I was doing a little bit of research, but it was a direct reflection on several scenes that are played out in the movie. The stop animation, you know, showed the, showed the flower, right? And then also showed on the subject of soulmate, this reflection where paper was cut in half or cut into two um, and it mirrored each other, um, kind of reflecting the scene um, in the natural hot springs. I would like to actually interject here and say that as I grew older, soulmate isn't just about finding that the love of your life. Soulmate is someone who completes you or compliments you even. I, I don't find that it has to be just relegated to that one person who's going to come and save me because I actually find that as I grow older, I create a community around me uh, who understands me and sees me. And that in itself is actually closer to that soulmate ideology mm. of someone understanding you and feeling whole and complete because of the other person. And I find that it's not just one romantic lover. Right. Okay. I love that. I do want to throw it in here that I am a huge Disney fan. And so like the whole one-to-one soulmate thing, I think about, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, okay, maybe I do believe in soulmates or at least I hope for a soulmate. Right. Uh, Brian, you're, you're blaming Disney, right? Uh, so you're, already, you <laughs> you're already putting our show as enemies as Disney. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, no, no, but I, what you're saying, Brian is completely fair because Yes, that idea does come from a lot of those typical romantic movies where you there's one person to to fulfill all aspects of your yeah. life. We're yeah, we're, we're groomed that way growing up. Yeah, but I think an even better segue into this movie as to what made this movie great because like, hey, plot twist! I just had an idea. What if the soulmate wasn't necessarily between Aster and Ellie, but maybe Ellie and Paul, mm-hmm. right? Like friendships right. and right. circular friends and like other people. It's you bring up a really, really good point, Renee, and I think this movie touches upon that, which is which is another reason why what made this movie really, really strong. Yeah. Why do you think that the movie or Alice decided to set this movie in Squamish in a small town versus kind of like a big city town like New York or L.A.? Do you think that made a difference? Absolutely, because then it's it introduces this opportunity of talking about the other, mm-hmm. right? And there's so many different facets of being the other, and in this case. Not only is it Squamish, which is a small, tiny, rural, uh, fictional town, mm-hmm. but also it also cata- um, this catalyst of religion othering you as well, right? She's you know this this Chinese family is the only one who don't actually believe in God. 
all throughout. You see Ellie being bullied, this chugga chugga choo choo bullshit, like you know, like you know, all of that. I, which is, I, I, which is so real, by the way. Right. So real. Yeah. Oh yeah, my last name has been Chugga Chugga Lulu. Chugga Chugga <laughs> Yeah. So you know, I think I, I think it's a very common thing, and so when you're when you're in com- small communities, um, if you're the only one, yeah, you're definitely going to feel like this disconnect from everyone else, right. which is the the different one. Yeah. Right, and even even when Ellie joins that that house party, the the senior uh, after party, the senior recital after party. They're like Chinese girl, right? Yeah. Most of them don't even know her name, right? Renee, to your point, she's other, right? She's yes. seems like the only Asian person in that town yeah. and in that school. They ostracize her in a way. Absolutely. And I think also um Ellie assumes that role too. In in a way, right? She doesn't forcefully put herself or try to force herself into the, you know, mainstream high school culture. Right, absolutely. Because I know for me, I was a social butterfly. I know I wasn't like the only Asian, but I definitely put myself to be a more, the the most mainstream kid, I guess. I, I was able to just kind of go and hang out with the jocks and the cheerleaders and wow. the, Popular. So cool. you know, like every, every social stratosphere there was, I was in there and it was infiltrating them because I, but then also in that regard, like, one of the things that I really appreciate about Ellie is that I was a chameleon, if you will. I could mm. change my colors to fit into anywhere. But Ellie is strongly herself, right? And rejects the notion that she needs to fit in. Chameleon is a good is a good word because I think we all do that. Maybe to me, I think Alice said it in a small town versus a big city. And I think I, from it, for me, I think it's just a practicality um, standpoint. It's able to allow us as you know, watchers to focus in on this tiny town. We live in big cities, so it we don't get that same experience. But there are those who are in small town USA who are the one Asian person. Yeah, and if they're two, they're friends. Yeah. Yes. And then also your high the high school students like, well, don't you know other Asian person? Aren't you guys like best friends? Like, <laughs> I've never met that person. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> One of the things that I like about Ellie is that she actually uses that outsiderness to her advantage and monetizes it oh, yeah. by charging people for this perceived person of being smarter. She is actually smarter. She tries hard to be able to be smarter than all of people. Um, and so, yeah, being able to make make that money, make that paper from her classmates. Yeah, she's like, might as well profit from it. Yes. Kind of a on-brand Asian thing to do, too. Right, kind of a token on point. Yes. <laughs> You know, yes, from a practicality standpoint, it only heightened, you know, the 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 minority and how outcasted she really was. But at the same time, I always view small town and big town as more of a coming to age um, effect, right? Where you think about a small town, it's it's home, it's familiarity with their, your entire community, and there's a certain certainty that as you're growing older, this is my life, and this is what I'm going to do. Um, and then the big city is more associated to adventurous, right? Um, the unfamiliar, the uncertainty. And so when, when Ellie was, um, you know, which, deciding which college she was going to go to, she was going to go to the college up the street or the one down the block all the way further down, she ultimately decided, hey, I'm going to go to Grinnell University, um, which is much further, which is in a way indicative of her um, blossoming and growing outside of this small community and becoming and finding out who she really is. Did you guys go to a university or college or whatever away from home? 
or did you stay close to home? I stayed close to home. Relatively close. I went to San Francisco State, so still in the Bay Area, yeah. I was born and raised in Fresno, which is it's 200 miles away, and my parents couldn't fathom sending their... So I went to college when I was 15, and they couldn't imagine sending their 15-year-old daughter to college all by themselves. So they they sold everything, uprooted themselves, and ended up living in like a you know rinky-dink small apartment just so that I could go to college out here in the Bay Area. Wow. So it's actually really like that was a huge sacrifice for my parents to do. But I was going to say like it's I feel like it's fairly uncommon actually to for Asian families to be okay with having their kids go far away. Yeah. For oh yeah. For college, sure. Right. For sure. That is also something that I felt like was huge actually right yeah but what the funny thing about that it's it's unless it's a huge prestigious college because <laughs> if, <laughs> if i told my parents yeah. i'm going to harvard they're like great what are you gonna pack yeah <laughs> uh, if it was a full ride scholarship yeah exactly right? yeah yeah that's okay. true yeah <laughs> they're like perfect harvard <laughs> who's paying it's always the question right exactly. yeah yeah no that is that is super true and it's weird because at least for me, I wanted to go to a far off college, or at least I didn't want to stay close to home. And I, I visited Long Beach, which is you know still in California, but far enough. And I ended up not going to Long Beach. I think deep down, I didn't want to leave home at that point in my life. And I think that is the benefit and curse, kind of depending on how you look at it, of Asian culture being family as a unit, right? Stay as close as you are as, as, a, as a unit. Family, for sure. Because Ellie actually says, like, it's a full ride scholarship. She goes to the school, the school down the street from her, right? Right. Full ride. I'm a daughter of immigrants. And so I know how hard it is to be able to have to start with nothing and mm-hmm. be able to make it. And, you know, that, that definitely was like a discussion. My mom ended up working at the college just so that it would be a free tuition. Me not having to pay for those college credits actually really helped out. Do you think Ellie stayed or initially didn't want to go far to Grinnell because she also felt like she didn't want to abandon her dad? Oh, yeah. Well, one, it's her relationship with the father is a very authentic relationship. Um, the way the way they interact, especially the way you know, they hang out in the kitchen all the time, um, the the dinner table, how they, how they eat dinner mm-hmm. to get to, uh, together, how they interact, how they speak to one another. It's, it's minimal words. Um, it's more of the action. I think it's very, very evident that in the back of her mind, it's hard to leave home, right? Especially with just her father and I can relate where it's uh, me and my mom, right? It's just my mom. And, you know, when they are, when they're growing older, getting up there in age, it's you're, you're the breadwinner of the house. You're the caretaker. Um, you and want if, to protect them too, because they protected you. Right, right. And, you know, by the end of the movie, I mean, she and her dad had, a very heartfelt conversation about, hey, we came here to America, not so that you can't be like me, but that you can be like your mother. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He proactive, he took the approach to, you know, not push her out the door, right? But he made her dumplings. It's, it's like a way of saying, I'm okay with it, or I'm, I'm be good. I'll be good. Right. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he didn't, he didn't say anything first. He just went ahead and, and, and cooked for her. Um, and said, get the hell out of my house. Right. Um <laughs> I don't think he I don't recall that line but <laughs> I might have to watch it again. <laughs> Ryan, 
basically note that, you know, he's basically kind of co-signs his life to mm-hmm. just being a couch potato. Then all of a sudden he actually gets up and he starts doing things and showing to her that he will be okay. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, yeah, that that's great. Yes. Get out, of, get the hell out of my house with these dumplings. <laughs> so the, so the plot of the movies has been often described as kind of like the modern day Serrano de Bergerac. Renee, I know that you did some research in terms of like, what is Serrano de Bergerac? I don't know if you've got a chance to, read the play before right but kind of summarize it you don't have to kind of get yeah. too deeply into it but to talk about what the sure. play is about well the cliff notes version of serrano de bergerac is that basically it's this person who falls deeply in love with this beautiful and intellectual person named roxanne uh who happens to be his cousin apparently and but despite <laughs> i know so despite serrano's just this brilliance and charisma. One of the key defining physical attributes of him is that he has this really this like hook nose, right? Mm-hmm. It's huge. Um, and so he considers himself to be too too ugly really to even express his feelings towards her. And, you know, it's just really this unrequited love of just he just really, really finds her to be this intellectual that no one else can match wits with him, and she's the only one who can she just falls madly in love with this other person. And so then there's this conflict where he tries to just fight this other person and really ultimately dies mm-hmm. right, with, without having this love you know, coming back to him. And so, you know, so all throughout the story of the um, Serrano actually writes these letters to Roxanne, but then she continues to fall deeply in love with this person named Christian. Right. And Paul sees Ellie as like this amazing wordsmith with her letter writing, you know, right. but he doesn't see her as like a romantic. I don't think at first. Um, there's a, I think there's like a lot that happens in in cars in general. I don't know if a lot happened for you guys in cars when in high school. Uh, uh, <laughs> talked about that actually in another episode. Yeah. Oh, really? yeah Ray, oh. Ray touched upon some stuff. Yeah, listen to always be my maybe. Anyways. <laughs> Well, um, actually, what's interesting about this movie is those typical things that happen in the back of cars actually don't happen in this movie. They're always used in a way as like reconnaissance, if you will. Yeah. Right. What's interesting is that very there, there's like this push and pull because uh, for me personally, I feel like a lot of movies actually only do um, only really focus on like the non-technology aspects of, of stuff. So when they start introducing like text messaging and then it always brings it back into like modern day versus it being like you know right. 16 candles in, in the 80s or something uh, at one point <laughs> paul says you're not sending her enough of emojis right yeah yeah <laughs> i actually hate emojis like don't <laughs> send me emojis <laughs> <laughs> the debate is out there in terms of exactly where emojis fit when you're trying to uh pursue someone okay so Eggplant. You're trying to exactly right. Eggplant, right? Eggplant, peach, done. Brian, have you ever sent an eggplant emoji? Don't lie. <laughs> no. But it's really funny because Paul says, "Send her glasses, caterpillar, something, pineapple." <laughs> and actually, this brings up a whole different um, subject. But the way communication has grown from from written letters, text messages, over to just visuals, emojis, video cam calls whatever 
And so I think you want to combine all of those different avenues. Like you answered your question raised, like you got to take whatever opportunity that you have, whether it is text, whether it's calls or FaceTime or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about Alice Wu, who is the writer director of The Half of It. So she came out with an indie film uh, called Saving Face, which I would love to kind of do a deep dive on that movie as well. But Saving Face it was a low-key but cult classic, I think instant classic among the Asian American community and LGBTQ plus community as well. However, her movie, Saving Face, was her last movie, which she made 15 years ago. A lot of people were kind of asking her, the industry was like, when's your next thing? Now, this idea of momentum, I kind of make the connection with sports, right? In, in a game. But this idea of momentum, does it really exist, Brian? I want to go with the gray area. So let's, t- let's take two scenarios here. Um, taking time in between the projects, which she did a 15 year hiatus, I would assume, yes, going through personal issues, but at the end of the day, you prepare to, per- you know, to perfect your craft and your product. Um, so there is no reason, I believe, that you shouldn't strive for the highest quality. Uh, but at the same time, keeping the momentum going, you want to strike when the iron's hot. So with her 15 year hiatus, I mean, who's to say that? it wouldn't have been as effective back then versus now. But I can say generally with the themes of this movie, particularly when it comes to accepting um, LGBTQ plus communities and inclusivity now is much higher than it was when the movie or when Saving Face was released in 2004. Mm. Alice had wasn't just like sleeping the entire 15 years, right? She was honing her craft, right? And... You know, and I and I appreciate that hustle, right? To be able to get to that point where she felt like, okay, I can tell this story. Because there's this perfectionism in it that really shines through. The the script is so tight. Oh my god, I agree. That only became possible by just probably a ton of iteration. Mm. So I don't doubt Alice's um potential and her skill set her as a writer and filmmaker and her ability clearly with the two films that she two feature films because she's also made other stuff too as well but two feature films that she's had she's very good i take into the netflix effect the netflix effect meaning that netflix has allowed a lot of filmmakers to produce and reach a wider audience much easier than it would if she was to go through the you know, the, in, the, the, the standard industry route, which is like the, the big studios and the big, net, big networks. Because I also try to think about it. What if this movie, what if Netflix wasn't around? You know, would this movie come out? Would have come out, but also would have had the same effect as it does to us currently. I, I want to I say I, I'm grateful that you actually brought up the streaming platform itself. Because back in 2018, they, the cost to buy, produce, and license content was $12 billion, right? It's a huge industry. In 2019, it was $15 billion. Damn. And so year over year, right, they're doing these billion-dollar investments, but they're also getting that money back, right? So I, I don't know, like, um, if you've watched um, or followed some of, like, the Netflix shows that they've canceled, and you have these huge um, fan bases who are coming through and trying to say, like, Netflix, don't cancel the show. It's really great. But it's because Netflix has these incredibly stringent uh, guidelines on, like, what a successful uh, movie or TV series is. Yeah, it's weird. It, they're, they're rated, they're, they don't do gross sales as you 
typically right. would in a movie theater because right. you could do that by tickets. But Netflix right. is different. It's viewership. Right. So how do, how do they, I don't know what a successful series would be. No one knows. No one knows what their actual All secret. Are. It is there. Yeah, there's a secret sauce, but tie into the fact that what you're asking is like, would that have been as successful? Well, there is marketing that goes into it and they're spelling, they're spending like $2 billion in marketing as well. So on top of the licensing of the content and producing the content, they're also then spending billions of dollars to market these films. And so, yeah, they actually kind of have to not only have this momentum of like when they come, when they drop it, cause they don't really do too much marketing leading up to the, they just like drop it and they're, and they expect you to like just organically go to it. And I think that what they understand is they need to be able to continue to cater to these emerging markets, such as like India and Japan um, and China. Right. And so having more Asian influenced content. So if you've gone through and seen like Indian matchmaker, all of these other Indian uh, performers uh, and comedians like coming in, like they even have sent um, some of the, there's um more Americanized comedians too, like India or like Joe Koi just recently went to Philippines. I don't know if you guys saw that special, but you know, so, so they're, they're trying to pay into mind, like, Hey, we really need to capture the, this audience. And how do we do that? Let's add more Asian faces to it. Um, so yeah, when you're talking about like the mechanics of business, it needed to be popular. The timing of when this movie came out resonated with a much wider audience and so now, where society is more accepting um, of such communities, I think it is infinitely more powerful it is now than it was before. Um, so, for example, you know, like CBD, right? It, it, THC and CBD products, if they were ubiquitous, let's say, you know, 10 years ago, um, it wouldn't have hit the market as strongly as it did now because, one, there were so many challenges and obstacles that you get through from a legal perspective. And it wasn't as widely accepted because the studies didn't the studies weren't there to show the benefits of such products. So it's all about market timing. And when you tie it back to this movie now and this film, I would say is that 15-year hiatus, that break, helped her. So the this movie brings up two terms that I found fairly new definitions in my world. And I understand that in the LGBTQ plus community, non-cis community, these have probably been uh, existing way before, you know, us, I, I guess I consider myself cis, have not been privy to, which is cis normativity and heteronormativity. How do we kind of extrapolate those definitions? And I probably be more of a question for myself and Brian in terms of like what those terms mean to you. And from our perspective, why is it important for us to be a little bit more knowledgeable in those areas? You know what, man, I'll, I'm like you, Ray. I, those are new terms when you brought up. I Truth be told, I haven't heard about them. Um, but that, that, that's why I question myself, right? Is Because growing up, I personally don't ever discuss sexual orientation or preference or even gender identity um, with, with my close family members or friends. Um, it's just something that um, we haven't actively discussed. But living here, just generally in a very liberal and progressive society in the Bay Area, like it's all around us. So I'm aware. That being said, I don't mm. recall any negative experiences with like the gay community. Um, I would like to believe I'm very accepting, but at the same time, I haven't proactively promoted it. Though you and I are aware, now I haven't done anything to elevate their platform or their voices. So does that mean I'm ultimately unsupportive? I wouldn't say it's unsupportive. You know, I think not actively championing is yeah. 
is kind of holding up the structures of of cis mm. normativity, right? Mm-hmm. One of the biggest things is that in high school you kind of don't really want to have labels, and so right. I have I have a lot of friends who were maybe curious, but they didn't want to like, come out and say that they were. And then you definitely have people who are like very much so like I'm proud. And, but you still, still today, you have legislation in on the federal side of like that are anti-trans for an example. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, square, square Hamish, everyone is Christian and Ellie is right. not. Right. We're all conditioned to think that man and woman equals love, right? Man and woman are the ones who are supposed to be courting each other. And even to go further to say it's the man's job, right? Quote, unquote, the man's job Mm -hmm. to do the courting, to pay for everything, to do all this other stuff, right? And so we still have those narratives out there. And like that, that's part of the, that's part of what, why I think Alice Wu's subversiveness, which is also kind of overt as well, in the fact that, um, you know, Ellie goes and says, like, this is not a love story. And and she's like, I don't typically, I'm not typically the person you see as the protagonist in those stories either. Right. So all of those Mm -hmm. aspects of it is is challenging the the notion that, you know, the, the male person is the one who's driving the story, is the person who's going to win the girl and things like that. They don't even really say that it's a lesbian or bi kind of relationship. Yeah, I don't think Ellie gives herself a or identifies exactly. however she identifies herself with a word. And I think it's really scary when, especially Asian culture in particular. You know, I'm a bi, gender fluid, non-gender conforming person, but I don't just come out and say it to my family. If they ask me, I'll I'll tell them like, yeah, but it's not something that I volunteer. And, you know, yeah, there's a part of me that feels a little bit sad at myself that I can't, that I don't feel comfortable enough to, like, wave a flag of, you know, non-gender conforming by. Like, I can't do that. But I do it through my my art. Um, sometimes it's subtle and sometimes it's not. Uh, but I, and I do that through just, like, the things that I do around me. I have a friend, too, who was, who was a closeted, um, you know, bisexual in, in, in high school. And it's actually funny because we connected, I would say, you know, six months ago, right? And he specifically told me that he pushed our friendship or he he shied away from our friendship because he didn't want me finding out. He didn't want me to know. And so we so we grew distant um, immediately after high school. And so we reconnected recently. And this is what he told me. He was afraid of coming out. He was afraid that if he were to come out, it would change how I perceive him or view our friendship. How did, how, how did that make you feel, though, when he told you? No different. Absolutely no different. Um, yeah. Were you hurt or were you like, uh, okay? Because um, he shied away from our friendship? Right, yeah. Uh, no, I just I just attributed to it. It's just, it was just a natural progression of us going to, to college um, and kind of growing apart. Right. But even though I wasn't hurt, when I, he did come out and, tell, and told me, it was more powerful. Um, it was even more empowering for, I think, for me and him. Um, mm. But that brings up a bigger question, Ray. And I think Ellie did not specifically come out on camera or in the movie to her, her father. father. Yeah, missed opportunity or better left on lo- alone or yeah. or half of it too. <laughs> the college years, okay, saved by the. Yeah. <laughs> I so basically, it's this idea of saving face. Throwing out puns everywhere. <laughs> I know. 
you know, so I, I really do feel that there's, there's this, um, and whether it's an invisible weight on our shoulders to be able to be yeah. like this ideal child or like being able to not drag the family name down for whatever reason, even right. if it's self-imposed. Even if it's just completely made up in your mind. Right. Like, like, you know, Brian, you were just saying about your friend who, who said they felt like they didn't, they couldn't come out to you. Personally, I feel like it was on brand. I'm passing. I'm very grateful to be able to be passing as like this, you know, person who's in a cis relationship, who's a woman, right? And, and I will even still refer to myself as a woman just because it makes it easier. But I know like for me growing up, I never really kind of conformed to just feeling like I was known as a tomboy, right? Like, and so, you know, that was my identity. It is on brand to be Asian and to not prescribe to a label because the idea of saving face for your, your family, the community. Yeah. And this idea of others kind of having a perception of you, the, the quote that is in the movie, which is hell is other people, which is a line from a very old school play, French play, I believe, by Jean-Paul Sartre. Hell is actually this how others perceived and perceive of you. And it's almost kind of inescapable. You know, Renee, kind of touch upon in terms of like where that the the play is set about, right? Where these there's three people set or stuck into a room. Right, exactly. What's interesting is that there's this really captivating scene where they're doing reconnaissance actually on Aster. Hey, uh, can I ask you a question? I don't want to try a taco sausage. Now, why Squamish? It just. Like, your dad seems so unhappy here, and you also seem kind of unhappy. I gotta go. No, wait. No, you're not taking this seriously. I have a ton of work I have to do. No, I just, you're so smart, like, too smart to, like... Waste my time trying to win you a girl who probably never look your way. No, it just seems weird. You're weird. No, yes. Enjoy your happy life in Squamish. The thing about no exit is it's like how what I really want is to run my own shop. You know, with new recipes. And FYI, taco sausage is really effing good. Okay, but, but I'm the fourth son. My family's been making the same sausages for 49 years, and, and it doesn't matter if they're going broke or out of style. They're Nana's recipes, and if Ma can't have her Nana, at least she can keep making her sausages. And if I break away, it'll break her heart, and it's either her heart or mine. So I stay. So then, in a sense, his mother is also beholden by this idea, too, right? Everyone is stuck. And that is how hell is other people. It's not to say that the exposition of, of someone's expectations of you per se but it's also your own perceived expectations of others i want to pivot a little bit because i don't think i've talked enough about aster and aster is i think a huge huge part of this movie who is aster aster is the it girl she is the get in the car bitch we're going to go shopping type of girl all right or that is how other people in the school perceive her to yeah, be yeah i say depends on who who sees her that way Exactly. And I think that is the concept of hell is other people is that, you know, Aster is a multidimensional person, but on the surface level, she is that pretty girl, that pretty it girl who is, you know, everybody wants to their her to be like them so they can validate themselves. And at the same time, she mentioned this in the movie as well, is that when she is a lot like other people, it makes her kind of nobody. And so she's trapped by everybody around her um, where she's unable to express her inner personality. 
one of the things that uh, Alice Wu actually talks about is like um, about color and how she uses color throughout the movie. And so whenever you, and so in that scene where she's like, be like them, they give her this really big, Pink. beautiful, yeah, like not beautiful, kind of garish, but it's <laughs> right? this infinity scarf. When in high school, she uses these big, bold, bright colors because she wants it to seem like otherworldly in a sense where it's just like this can't be real life because it just feels so um, like so bold in in that regard and everything outside of it is more tame and yes so, the house yes exactly the house the the train yard things like that and things actually start to kind of shift a little bit and start to blend and so one of the more colorful portions of it is when aster and ellie are in the hot spring together and everything around them is kind of like this muted color but then they're both sharing this really bright yellow and then like patterned yellow orange shirt with aster taking a part of ellie and putting it on her it's like this actual physical manifestation that maybe ellie is starting to feel like the ability to kind of be herself a little bit more you know and i love so i loved the cinematography and i love that scene in the build-up of being able to be awash with this the sea of thoughts from aster the the right the writing in the movie is just very poetic, right? The way that Alice the dialogue goes, it's all it's just it's got a lyricism to it almost, right? Yes. I have to mention this because you brought up cinematography, Renee. Did you notice in the last almost the last scene of the movie, you know, where Ellie and Aster eventually kiss, right? So they walked outside of the the taqueria and they were on the street. Ellie was on one side, Aster was on the other. They had a defined yellow, the middle yellow line that split them two apart. They were clearly on opposite sides of the fence in regards to their sexuality. That's how I saw it. Mm, interesting. And then later, as they were walking, having this conversation, you know, after, right, right after Ellie walked off, she jumped back, crossed that line, and kissed Aster. Right? She crossed that line and, and intentionally, you know, I'm ready to come out. Um, and so for a moment there, she was on the same side of the fence as Aster. Um, and I thought it was a really interesting way to visually depict they were on opposite sides, leaving some ambiguity as to what would happen later. But for a moment, she crossed that line. I think crossing the line wasn't necessarily about sexuality. I think it was about taking a chance, actually. Bold stroke. Yes, exactly. You see bold strokes throughout, right? You know, I think that's actually closer to what I perceived it to be is being able to cross that line of, am I going to take that chance? Am I going to risk it? She asks Paul, how do you know when someone wants to kiss you? Do we know that Aster wanted, right? I looked, I looked at, did you look at Aster's face and how her like her expression was going to mimic Paul's face? <laughs> you know, the whole weird eye thing. Right, right. What was interesting is that their first kiss wasn't on, on scene. Alice didn't show the first kiss. And it's crazy because in a teen movie that, proverbial first kiss is one of the pinnacle in a teenage romance but it's not on camera because we know about it when paul tells ellie in in the in the store right because ellie that's when ellie's like how do you know when someone wants to be kissed and you know the part of the nurture portion of it we brought it up at the very beginning of the segment we talk about disney that's over romanticized the idea of what a relationship is right and they just show these guys just kissing these women without their permission sometimes they're asleep even right uh, yeah exactly <laughs> like uh excuse me consent please 
Sleeping Beauty is trying to sleep. That is, that's so funny, right? They're making this these big gestures and it's like viewed as like, oh my God, he's such a, a bold risk taker. Nowadays, it's like, hold on, excuse me. I think that's why she asks, how do you know she wants to be kissed, right? Mm, good point. I still love you, Disney. I still love you, Disney. <laughs> I hope to be on uh, Mulan 2 voiceover voice cast. We're, I, we're totally ruining our chances with Disney right now in this episode. <laughs> I, I want to say that I think that it's really important to note that courting someone, there are no real rules. And it is. There are no real rules. Right. There's this social contract that we sign that we that is that is invisible and unspoken, but also at the same time, you know, we're just trying to because everyone has their own predetermined what they are into and what they're right. Exactly. When they're invisible and they're unspoken, that also means they could be made up. I mean, I I, I love a lustful kiss as much as anyone else. Seriously, right? Like I think there's this aspect of of people wanting to just be swept off their feet um, passionately, right? And then- now, nowadays it's got to be an agreement. It's got there has to be a discussion, a, <laughs> a pre lustful kiss meeting. And you say like <laughs> at four o'clock today after dinner or after lunch, where I'm going to kind of grab you and kiss you. Just want to make sure they're okay with that, and then. Your partner can be like, "Yes, I agree to that." You know, I have a my meeting before me. So it's got to oh be. Oh my good! So passionate kiss appointment. Got it. Okay. <laughs> so dick appointments. Calendar check. it. Yeah, you guys send it to your calendar invite. <laughs> I'll send you a calendar invite of when that's going to happen, just so you're aware. If you're running late, just kind of make sure to kind of let me know. Now I feel like I need to look at your calendar, Ray, and <laughs> see how many you've scheduled in. It's got everything. <laughs> uh. Again, at the beginning, with the gods splitting us in half, us being humans. So in the movie, who do you think is the other half? I think the movie does a good job of twisting your expectations. So they try to pit it as a romance, quote-unquote, movie, and have it be Ellie and Aster. But in reality, opposites attract and it's Paul and Ellie. I also think on the flip side of it being the half of it, I think half of the movie, half of the story isn't shown in the movie. And that's TBD when Ellie goes off to college. Personally, I don't really even feel that anyone is each other's half per se. But okay, so I have two thoughts here. One aspect of it is you don't see, like you noted earlier, you don't see the first kiss between Paul and Aster on camera. And the reason why is because the protagonist of the story is Ellie. She walks away from the situation. She doesn't want to con- to concern her. Mm-hmm. So that's why. But the second kiss or whatever, how many kisses they have, but one of the kisses is caught on camera and it's because it's right outside Ellie's window. She mm-hmm. catches it. right? And there's this pain that you can palatably feel from it where she is distraught over the fact that there's this person that she does really care about and this love triangle that persists because of it. And so what I wanted to also note too was like by the halfway mark in the movie, you actually think that Paul comes to the understanding that he, that Ellie likes Aster, but that's not it. It's Paul understanding that's how he should be able to talk about Aster. Mm-hmm. I uh, I think Paul and Ellie are the two halves that have found each other. 
when Ellie's dad is watching Casablanca and he says, best part, and it's the scene at the end of Casablanca where there's a quote that I wrote down and says, you know, Louis, Louis, I think this is the start of a beautiful friendship that we have. And I think the next sequence after that is when Paul and, and Ellie begin their arrangement of their budding relationship and friendship. So it kind of sets it up to say, like, this is a relationship that is going to grow together. And there's a lot of internal dialogue because I view Ellie and Paul as, as one person where Paul is sometimes that puppy dog, bumbling fool, for lack of a better word, that when we meet the person that we think that we are in love with, it is so hard for us to say the words and express how we really feel. But sometimes, and when we get a chance to be with that person, we're just so shotgun effect with so much emotion, we don't know what to say. But when we're at home thinking about that person, we become a little bit more articulate, we become a little bit more eloquent with our thoughts, because you have time to kind of introspectively think, how do I feel about this person? That is Ellie's version of being able to express eloquently what Paul, how Paul feels with Aster. The last point I'll make is, is that you think, yeah, it was heartbreaking for Ellie to uh, see Aster's second kiss with Paul. I would argue that it's actually good for Ellie because it confirms that Ellie's words and connection with Aster is so perfect that she's captured her love through her words. If it was Ellie in front of her, Aster would be in love with Ellie. Have you ever felt amorous feelings for someone else through someone else talking about that person? I know I have. Like never meeting the person? Right. So for an example, uh, like you know, I was working and one of my coworkers, she confided in me that she really liked this other person on our team. But she would go on and on about how much she really likes them. And, you know, this is like years long of working side by side with this person. And I started to see that person who I never thought of in that way, the same as she did. And so I could hear how she would go on and on about this person, but it is unrequited love, right? And then they started to like me instead of liking her. Mm knowing that connection so it was like a really messy triangle by the way but basically um have you ever felt like that where someone is just uh, ascribing to you how much they like this person you're like "Eh, i don't ever really thought about that person before but now hearing how you are going on about them maybe i kind of do like them a little bit too i think maybe the closest possible thing for me is you do meet people in, in your life who probably are in very committed relationships. And, and to me, it's no intention of like, oh, I want to break up this relationship. But you make such a connection where you match with them intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, whatever the case may be, right? We talk about having different soulmates. And you just make a connection with them where sometimes I think the thought comes up in my head. It's like, I wonder what it would be like in a romantic relationship. That opens the question of, do you believe in platonic relationships? Mm. I think yes until no actually I don't. <laughs> I think if <laughs> if if there's always an attraction then no. Right? So you're confined by oh she's in a relationship or he's in a relationship then I can't touch that. I'm sorry I don't use the touch but like I can't approach this. I actually really enjoy like a lot of the the charged sexual tension and sometimes I think a lot of people feel like they um, like guilty about it? Yeah, maybe they feel guilty about it, but it's like, no, I think human. But also at the same time, it's also about like trust. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I think that's as, as humans and as adults, we should be able to talk about it without that feeling of being rejected or that feeling of maybe someone uh, being hurt by it and being able to just like talk about it. Brian, do you think there's a such thing as platonic relationships? On the surface level, I didn't believe in it. As long as you're always attracted to them, right? Yeah. I, yeah. Initial impressions, no, I don't believe in platonic relationships, but like it's, it's really, really hard to say. It, it, it's it is tough. So, but let's put it in a in a scenario. Let's say you were dating someone, and your significant other has uh, a really good friend that that they recently just met, and they just vibe very well. And it's a person of your gender, and they tell your significant other says, "We're just friends. We're totally cool." But he knows I'm with you X Y Z, and we're completely platonic. Do you believe them? I know trust is part of it too, right? Yeah, so uh, I, I thought I gave this a lot of, I wouldn't say I give a lot though, but it has crossed my mind many, many times, um, especially when I finished reading this book called Six Pillars of Self-Esteem. Mm-hmm. The reason why somebody may view, like in this case, right, where you have, I'm with somebody, my significant other, and they have a really close, tight-knit relationship with another male friend. How I perceive that is highly dependent on my own belief in my self-esteem. If I'm extremely confident in my own ability in my relationship, in myself, that I would more naturally view their relationship as they're just friends. It has nothing to do with how they're actually interacting, but how I perceive it. And if I lack that self-esteem, I'm always going to view myself, I'm therefore inferior, and therefore this guy poses a threat. But if I view myself as highly confident, this guy is their friend. They're they're not a threat, but they're just friends. It's all about your own perception, how you view yourself, regardless of the other person. What if that guy reaches out to you and be like, hey, I'm trying to holler at your girlfriend? Come on, come on. <laughs> come on, just don't do it, right? Uh, <laughs> all right, we're my baseball bat. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you tell your, your girlfriend be like, no, he literally just told me that he was trying to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then you have to ask her like, hey, you know, I, I kind of need you to be an adult about this and, yeah. and kind of set this record straight, right? Brian, you put such a fine point to it it's about self-confidence, right? It's about what you know for yourself and your self-esteem and having that self-esteem in yourself to be able to make sure to know like, hey, you know what, what I perceive of the situation versus what it actually is. And I think that is Paul's reckoning moment where he realizes that Ellie is in love with Aster, but he kind of looks within himself. He says, you know, our friendship that we've built upon this I cannot throw that all away just because of a a man-made belief, you know, with institutional religion. And then he realizes, and he comes to realization when he has that talk with Ellie's dad. It's a bold stroke, her, right? The all all the whole movie is just this should just be called bold strokes. Oh, Excuse I me? think that's a different movie. <laughs> uh, it's like taco salad. Oh my god! Bold strokes. Just Google it, and you're like, nope, that is not why. <laughs> So let's go into our closing segment. So one of the themes in the movie is an interaction that Ellie and Aster are having. They're talking about painting. The difference between a good painting and a great painting is typically five strokes. And they're usually the five boldest stroke in the painting. So I want to ask, we're going to go around here and make our closing statements. We're going to argue who took the boldest stroke in the movie and why. Okay, so we're going to try to convince each other, and I'm going to say yay or nay. 
I'm just kidding. But I want us to go around to to give our case to say who took the boldest stroke in the movie. Renee, would you like to go? No, let's have Brian. Let's have Brian go first, actually. Oh, she is deferring. Brian, you are going to go first. Sure. Please take the stand. I'm gonna go with our boy Paul Munsky. Mm, and the puppy dog. Yeah, he's his 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 blossoming character arc is extremely fascinating. You touched upon this earlier, Renee, but. Um, you know, specifically mentioning being trapped, right? Being trapped within his family and his family business. Yes, he talked about him being the fourth son. He has another, you know, um, running a business of like 49 years. He has to continue this legacy and cannot innovate. And he's also a product of institutional religion, right? And so he's groomed to have a certain belief. And ultimately, growing up, that's all he's surrounded with being in this small town. But he broke out of that shell. I would say that he took his boldest stroke when he had to decide between his friendship with Ellie or his belief growing up. He decided, you know what, Ellie's my friend. I'm not going. To, I'm going to love her regardless of how she loves. And at the same time, I'm going to fucking pursue my fucking taco sausage. And I don't give a shit what anybody says because this is bomb. I'm going to have all my brothers taste it and they're going to love it. And we're going to innovate for the next 49 years with more taco sausages. I think him defying everything that he believed in growing up, defying his family's way of doing things. He, in my opinion, had the boldest stroke. Let's go, Paul. Okay. Team Paul. I see. Renee, what do you think? Take it or leave it? Um, I, I liked your rationale but for me personally i'm going to say the person who did the boldest stroke is actually ellie's father edwin chu Mm, interesting Mm. sleeper choice interesting the reason why i say that is because oftentimes we actually forget the stories of our parents who took the boldest strokes to be able to leave everything they knew behind to create a new life um, so, you know, by the end of it, there's this redemption arc that he goes through. You see him sitting on his little um, his little recliner in the living room, watching videos in every language other than English sometimes. And by the way, on a really fucking old TV, right? really old TV. Right. And you and so you see that he's kind of stuck in the this eighties maybe or something like that. When whenever he lost his wife. Because we really don't know the half of it, don't know the half of his story. But by the end you see this transformation from him that maybe he is ready to begin life again. And so he took two bold strokes, three bold strokes, however many ones you wanna take into account, uh, by not only uprooting his entire family, this incredibly educated man with the love of his life, and then their offspring, their child, to then only be dumped into a situation that it was, in all intents and purposes, against him. So I feel like by the end of it, he does take another bold stroke to say, you know what, I'm going to live again. Very strong, very strong. Good choice. However, Your Honor, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> here's my case. I think the boldest stroke comes from trig trig <laughs> rockstar so here's why now and, and i'll break it down how i interpret it is that you're allotted five bold strokes number one paul texting too early bold very bold and this idea of making a bold move inherently means that you're taking a bigger step than what you normally would take 
And so you don't know whether or not you're either taking a step forward or taking a step back. So when Paul texting too early, both Paul and Ellie say like, what are you doing? But they lucked out because Aster ends up agreeing to get fries. Number two is when Ellie plagiarizes words to Aster in their first letter to Aster, thinking Aster would not know any better, but she played along with it. Number three, Paul's speaking for himself. But they're also on their second date saying, hey, I, I want to be more than friends. I, I like you. That's a bold move. Could have gone either way, but it ended up working out for Paul. Number four is when Aster is asking Ellie to hang out. So Aster finds Ellie in Paul's room, kind of thinking like, oh, I guess you guys are a thing. When Ellie kind of assures her, like, no, nothing's going on. He's she's super into you. And that day could have just ended. And who knows what their relationship would have been like. But I think Aster had some kind of curiosity, this connection with Ellie that caused her to say, hey, you know, I have the day. Let's hang out. And number five is when Paul trying to kiss Ellie and Aster sees them in the locker room. That might have taken the cake as the boldest stroke, which so I would have said Paul. But Trig takes the cake because it all comes to a head and boils over when Trig asks Aster to marry her. And that forces Ellie to stand up and Paul to stand up to come forward and come clean, which creates this chaos in this church. And I actually really love the church scene, so it's really funny. That was probably the most rom-com uh, scene in the entirety of the film, which is like, wow, am I just watching like a generic rom-com? And I sympathize with Trig because Trig is the bold stroke to the side when Aster gives Ellie the painting of the sunflower. Trig is this blissfully ignorant person who's kind of just in his own world thinking everything is all good and and uh, he's not a bad guy right i think that is something that is that i know too he's not your typical like hateful side person he's just kind of there he's lonely but he's hopeful because he thinks it's going to be all good for him and aster but he takes one too many bold strokes in the movie that causes this whole thing to ultimately everyone to come to come to Jesus moment, I guess, if you will. So that is my case in terms of why Trig takes the boldest stroke in the movie. Yeah, I definitely, I think that um, marriage proposals are kind of going, <laughs> getting out of hand, right? <laughs> How do yeah. I make, yes. So everyone's in on it in that regard. Um, yeah. Divine intervention. Well, we'll go ahead and end it here. Um, Renee, do you have anything that you want to plug? Uh, yeah, feel free to add me on Instagram at Renee. C-Y-A, Renee C. Ya, or following me on Facebook at Renee C. Ya as well. I'm also on Twitter. It's Renee underscore C. Ya. Awesome. Really love it. Brian, anything you want to plug? My website, www.briancteng.com. Portfolio, photographs. Beautiful photos, by the way. Thanks, man. Tune in next time for another episode of Real Asian Pod. <laughs>